So we're going into God's word this morning, and we're going to take a look. Whoops, we went too far there, guys. Can we go back? There we go. We're going to take a look at these parables of Jesus Christ once again, and we're going to look at a parable that perhaps you've heard before, but maybe never thought about. And as we look at these parables of Jesus Christ, we see that patterns emerge. We see that patterns emerge as to what Jesus is emphasizing in these earthly stories that have heavenly meanings. And these are discernible patterns for us, and they allow us to hone in on the ideas of what God is doing, the ideas that Jesus emphasized during his earthly ministry. And it's important for us to realize that Jesus is placing the emphasis and the focus here on what has eternal value. Jesus, as he approaches his time to leave the earth, he's teaching on his second coming, as we've seen. Last week, Vince explained about how God wants us to understand the difference between those who will be with him in eternity and those who will not, the sheep and the goats. And we saw how that story, it would have made sense in Jesus' day because they did separate out the animals naturally and they were divided. And Jesus applied that analogy, if you listen last week, to us as spiritual beings, and yet the people did not understand it. It did not make sense to all of them. And so we see Jesus did what he often did during the second half of his ministry. He focused on the same idea, and he taught from these parables, these analogies, over and over again, because as spiritual beings, we struggle to understand our spiritual nature, our sinfulness. We struggle. In fact, we have a predilection not to take responsibility for our own lives. The good news Jesus celebrates, and as we even heard last week, is that there is hope, there is salvation, but the good news comes with the bad news. We need a Savior because of our sin. And yet God loves us so much, and that's why Christ came. There is new life, and there is eternal life waiting for us, for all of us. And yet we need to fall on God's grace, and that's why we call it good news, because it's something that we don't deserve. And Jesus' first coming, that's about to come to its culmination at the cross, shortly after this passage, it establishes the way to eternal life, to renewed life even now. And his second coming will establish that reality for all of those people in that covenant that we just talked about this morning for all of eternity. Those who are in it will be with him forever. Or as Vince uh, put it, those who go to Sheepville and those who go to Goat Town. All right. And what we learn from Jesus today is how that spiritual reality, that one that he's come to talk about, that reality is actually... Guys, can you fix the slides for me up there, please? That reality is actually counterintuitive in the kingdom of heaven. It's counterintuitive to us. That reality is something that we would not see, it was something we would not understand. That reality doesn't make sense to us. And that's why we have things like vows during baptism. That's why the first question we talk about this morning, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? We need spiritual regeneration because we're spiritually broken people. That's what we celebrate at baptism, that God didn't leave us in that state. In fact, he made a way for us to be a part of his family. And so today we're going to learn about the eternal kingdom of redemption and what it offers and how we must be more like Jesus And as we hear this parable this morning, we're going to understand that 
it's counterintuitive, it's different, it goes against our expectations, it even goes against our self-identity. And what do I mean by that? Sin blinds us to our need for Christ. It blinds everyone in the world today. And it blinds us that we need him now more than ever. And we try, even today, with all the struggle and stress in our world, we're blinded to this, even in this pandemic. We try to justify ourselves. But throughout God's word, from the very beginning, throughout all of eternity, God has made it clear that we don't, we don't in any way figure this out on our own. We don't. So if you look at Psalm 143, 2, we see this from the very beginning. Look, do not bring your servant into judgment, the psalm reminds us, for no one alive is righteous. Not one is righteous in your sight. Not one is righteous in any way, shape, or form. Not one. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is counterintuitive. And that's the crowd that Jesus faces today. That's us. Even as we hear this passage today, it's counterintuitive to us. It doesn't make sense with our heart attitude. So as we enter into this today, we have to remember, we have to remember this does not make sense. So let's read Luke 18, 9 through 14, and let God's Spirit work as we learn from God's Word this morning. So starting here in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's holy word. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom. And as we're looking here, this whole cross section of the Jewish culture was listening as he taught this parable. All different kinds of people from all walks of life. And Jesus knows them. And he knows as God's son the particulars, the depths of their hearts and their being in the hearts of the Pharisees, the ones who led them, who were supposed to lead them well as spiritual leaders of Israel. And they had set the tone for the people, but unfortunately, they had set the wrong tone. And we see that clearly as Jesus starts out this parable. We've seen other parables. He's talked about them. But look at this one. Starting in verse 9, look what he says to them starting there. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Think about that. The one who looked down on everyone else. That's what they're talking about there. It's amazing that this parable starts out so bluntly. The, par the Pharisees thought that they followed God's word perfectly. They thought that they understood everything perfectly in the Old Testament. And Jesus has taken aim at them, but now he goes right at them. He's talked about how they are lovers of money and scoffers and want to justify themselves in the eyes of the people. And just the chapters preceding in Luke, he talks about this. 
And he's rebuked them. He's gone right at them on many occasions, but now he just gives them a broadside. He really just lays into them. And it's not just the Pharisees themselves that Jesus has come to call into repentance. This is far more about the heart attitude that they displayed and that the people who followed them displayed in a heart attitude that perhaps many of us, without realizing it ourselves, display. If we think back to Psalm 143, too, that we read just a few minutes ago, no one alive is righteous. And if God's word says that, how can they come to the assumption, how can any of us come to the understanding that we can trust in ourselves to be right before God? I don't have to tell you, I'm sure in your life and in my own, we're aware that we don't have it all together. And in a spiritual sense, to then trust in ourselves, this is a very very bad idea, and worse yet, there's practical ramifications for this because the Pharisees, when they do this and they trust in themselves, they trust in how much they walk, talk, look, act, smell, and seem like the, the good people, as much as they do that and the people follow along with that example, they're leading other people into not trusting in God alone for their faith, but trusting in themselves and in their actions. They didn't even realized they were doing it necessarily, and they were the good people, and they were doing that. And the problem with that, the problem with that is it becomes a comparison game. It becomes about us and those people. We begin judging other people, not that there isn't a right and wrong, but we start comparing who's the better person in God's eyes. This is not about whether there's a right or wrong. This is one of the biggest mistakes of the church. God's word clearly teaches there is truth, that there are things, there are lifestyles, there are actions and activities that are right before them, and that we all ought to be repenting of those things that we do. In our world today, it's not popular to say it, but it's what God's word declares. However, along with that, when we stop thinking that we're as sinful as somebody else because of what they do or what we do, and when we're not repenting of our sin, we are in big, big trouble because we're not right before God. And we start ranking ourselves that we're a little more together in God's side. In God's sight, we're more on his side, we're more in his care, we're more loved, and that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. It's part of that sinful human nature where we want to justify ourselves. Now, I could wax eloquent to you and look really intelligent and talk about uh, Hegel or Carl Jung or something like that. And if you're into philosophy or psychology or things like that or anthropology and the whys of humanity, you might think, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if I did that, you'd nod along and pretend it made sense and I would do the same thing if someone was doing it to me. That's not what Jesus does here. It's not that some of those things aren't true, but if you really understand them, they do reflect this sin nature. Here Jesus talks about two guys from, do, from two very different ends of the social and spiritual spectrum. He talks about them. He talks about the one that's acceptable and the one that's not in terms of the culture. And he teaches us about the heart of God and the heart of man. The depths of our sin and the depths of the brokenness in each one of us and how it causes us to need the blood of Jesus Christ that will soon be shed on the cross as our only hope for redemption. Our only hope. And understanding why these two guys are who they are and how they were seen in that culture by the people Jesus spoke to that day, that's the key to understanding this parable. Who they were and how everyone saw them 
That's the key to this parable. One was completely acceptable. One was very righteous, a Pharisee, right in the eyes of the people. And the other one was not at all acceptable. And here, having that context is key. Ken Bailey, the great scholar of the New Testament culture, he tells us here about the world of the Pharisees. And this is what helps us, the key to understanding this. There were two standards of people, two archetypes, if you want to go back to Hegel and Young and all that stuff I talked about earlier. There were two kinds of people, and we do this in our heads, even in our world today, two kinds of people in Jesus' day that were acceptable and the other that was unacceptable. First, the acceptable one in the first century Jewish culture, the good law-abiding, law-following ones, they were called the harbim. Those were the harbim, the Pharisees and those who followed them, the good, good-natured, wonderful people. And this is how you wanted to be regarded. You wanted someone to say, oh, so-and-so, they're harbim. That's the person you wanted to be. And that term in the culture, that was an old Hebrew term, and it, it meant simply law-keeper. That is one who keeps the law, who is right before God. And that's, if you were a good Jew, that's how you wanted to be regarded. That's what you wanted to be seen as. You were the fabric of society, the pillar of the community. That's who you wanted to be. They were the good guys, but worse, they knew it. Do we do that in our world? The title you went for. Now the flip side, the other side from that, you didn't want to be, the one you didn't want to be was Amharitz. That literally meant low life. Scum of the earth people. The people that were not just from the wrong side of the tracks, but were from the wrong side of the tracks from the people on the wrong side of the tracks. That's who you did not want to be. And in fact, if you would actually brush up against their clothing, if you were in the crowd, as it often was in the marketplace, and you bumped up against them, you would be what was called midras. You were unclean ceremonially if you just rubbed elbows by accident with them. I guess they used some social distancing in their world as well. I don't know. But if you bumped into them, you, you were someone who was thought of yourself as right and knew who they were. You'd think, oh no, I'm unclean. I have to go ceremonially wash myself and change my clothes and I'm so dirty because I touched up against them. I can't go to the temple now. I can't pray. I need to go cleanse myself because I don't want to even bump into them in the crowd. Think about that. The Pharisees wanted to keep their faith, their identity, their self-righteousness, their class of people. They were the greatest and they looked at those who were from the other side who were disobedient as the lowlifes. And guess who were considered the worst of the Amharites, the worst of the lowlifes of all? You guessed it, the tax collectors. Now we talked before about tax collectors. They were traitors. They used their, uh, they bought their title of tax collector. They used all of their resources then, not just make back what they invested to become tax collector over a region, but they would actually extort as much money as possible, like organized crime. They would use the muscle of the Roman centurions to accomplish this, and they would absolutely extort as much money as possible from the people, and the Romans loved this because it kept the people in check. It kept them oppressed. Who would have thought that taxation would be oppressive? That was a joke, just so we're clear. Okay, everyone. So anyhow, let's continue on here. They were traitors, and there's nothing that anyone would say 
to defend their actions. They were traitors to their nation, to their God, and to their neighbors, and they hurt their neighbors. And so they were looked down upon. And yet God did not hate them. Jesus calls one of his first disciples as Levi, Matthew, who he calls to be his very own. From the very beginning, Jesus sets the idea that God did not hate them. In fact, that he loved them. And yet God's people, like us, had people that they hated. So my question this morning as we go through this story, as you think about this idea of ranking and of comparison, think about that this morning, guys. Who do we compare who do we compare in the midst of this? Who do you see as a lowlife? And who do you see as a law keeper? Who is that that you see as a lowlife? And who is it that you see as a law keeper? And so Jesus tells that story and he continues on here in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So that's what he sets up there, he sets this up, this idea, this idea that he gives to them. So they would go up twice a day to pray. First they would pray at 9 a.m. and then at 3 p.m. and they'd offer sacrifices ceremonially to show their sorrow. And they would pray. And there's something about prayer here that we need to think about. Jesus talks about in Matthew 21, 13. Matthew 21, 13. This is one of those ones you can write down this week to look up. And he's actually quoting Isaiah 56, 7 here. Jesus talks about that the temple up on the Mount Jerusalem, that should be my house, he says, should be a house of prayer. Because prayer reveals our hearts. And Jesus recognizes that the substance and the posture of our prayers, what we say and how we say it in the depths of our being, reveals who we are. It reveals our hearts. Think back to your own life and times that you've prayed with passion, with fervency before God. When you've done that, you've done that probably because you were in some very difficult times. I bet you that's what you've done. And some of our most honest and transforming prayer times, they happen not when things are good, but when things are very difficult. And God uses heartfelt, honest prayer to shape us, to change us, even in difficult circumstances. And that's something important for us to remember with what's going on in the world. God uses those things to shape us. And we see here in Luke 18, the substance and posture of the prayers reveals who the people are. So let's look here at verses 11 and 12. So here in 11 and 12, he said to them, oh, I, I have that up. Sorry, guys. Was, my house will be a house of prayer. I forgot to put that up on the screen. Sorry about that. Verses 11 and 12. The Pharisees were standing and praying like, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Think about that. That's what he says there. He tells God all about himself. But think about this prayer. He's celebrating himself. I think about the old Looney Tunes cartoons. Does anybody remember Wiley E. Coyote, Super Genius? He would sit there and go, oh, Wiley Coyote. He would celebrate himself while he came up with a plan to get the Roadrunner. And of course, the Acme rocket would explode. The anvil would fall on his head and he'd have to start all over again. I love those cartoons, I'll be honest, because it was a reminder about humility. And there's no humility in this prayer. It's a lot of pride 
And pride is never good because it doesn't focus us outward. Pride always focuses us on ourselves. It does. It's just what it does. Nothing here in this prayer is about God. And therefore, it's not really a prayer at all. He may reference God, but the prayer is all about Him. It's all about Him. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Let that sink in for a minute. God, thanks that while other people have issues, I am awesome. That's what he just said. God, I thank you that I am the bomb and these other people, they stink. Without a doubt, this Pharisee is declaring the opposite of what God's word, of what Vince and Britta declared about themselves and about their son Graham today in baptism. God, I thank you that I am worthy. No, we say, I'm not worthy. God, I need you. I need your cleansing blood. This is spiritually, emotionally, relationally, in every way. This is self-righteousness before God. It's as if he's saying to God, but really saying to himself and the other people who could undoubtedly hear him, hey, look at me. I am here. And look where he stands. He gets right up by the Holy of Holies where God's presence must dwell. He said, I'm as close to God as you can get. I am amazing. In fact, thanks God that I'm so amazing. I'm not like others, especially not like this low life. That's what he's praying. Do you see it? The heart issue. We all think we can get it together. And some of us think we can get it all together. And yet, as we said at the start, the reality of God's kingdom is counterintuitive to our hearts. We don't get it together. This guy stands at the edge of where God's presence once dwelt with no humility. He says, I can get it together. He says, I can get it all together. And he can't. He cannot get it together. He continues. He labels. He calls the tax collector a low life. And it may seem silly, but take a deep breath and consider your own life. Consider, even if you didn't say it out loud, how you have thought this when someone caught your eye somewhere. And this was ingrained in how the Pharisees not only lived their lives, but how they taught the people to live spiritually. Here is a prayer that the Pharisees prayed in this day. Dr. John MacArthur brought this to light at one point. So we have a prayer here I'm going to put up. And take a look at this. This is a prayer that a Pharisee would pray in the second temple, the first century, Jesus' time. This is a prayer they actually prayed. I thank thee, Jehovah, my God, that you have assigned my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not with those who sit in the street corners. I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to study the words of the Torah and they rise early to attend to the things of no importance. I weary myself and they weary themselves. I weary myself and gain thereby while they weary themselves without gaining anything. I run and they run. I run towards the life of the age to come and they run toward the pit of destruction. That's the prayer that they prayed at that point. That's the prayer that they prayed. They prayed that regularly. It's not that some of the things in that 
prayer weren't true, they should look to God's word, the Torah, the Old Testament law. They, not that they shouldn't rely on God and they should look to him. But what they did, what they had become is prideful and they would look at other people who were far from God and they would say, what a waste you are. Think about that. Think about what they did. But to the audience, what Jesus says after this is even more shocking than that. He says that this Pharisee who celebrates that he knows God's word, that he lives God's word, he doesn't, he doesn't just give a tenth of his money. He gives a tenth of everything that he has. His spices and his stuff and whatever it is, he goes above and beyond. Whatever the checklist is, he's gone over it. He's gone far beyond and he wants everyone to know his resume. But what Jesus says here is even more shocking because the low life, the next guy is put in a very different picture. A very different picture in verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Think about that. And as we think about this, let's notice three things. We already talked about some of them with the Pharisee, but with the tax collector. What shows the difference between them are three things, their position, their posture, and their practice. So we're going to talk briefly about this as, as we close up with some of this today. Position, posture, and practice. Position, posture, and practice is what happens here. And we see this. That's what they talk about. Spiritual practice, spiritual position, spiritual posture, all of that. First of all, notice the position of the tax collector. While the Pharisee comes as close as the holy as the holy as possible, the tax collector, he stands as far away as he can. He doesn't feel he's even worthy to be up on that temple mount in God's presence, and yet he knows he needs it, so he's there. He has a desperate need, and he's conflicted because of how unworthy he feels in his sin. The tax collector won't even raise his eyes. Think of his posture. He won't even look towards heaven when he prays. He won't even look up and make eye contact with anyone. He won't. He's not comparing himself to anybody in a sense of self-righteousness. In fact, he knows. He knows in the depth of his being. Have you ever been so embarrassed you didn't want to look somebody in the eye? I guarantee you, if you struggled in your life with addiction, with loss, with saying hurtful words, you've struggled to look someone in the eye. Sin does that. Or if you've been hurt by someone else and the sin they've done, maybe you've struggled to hurt some, to look someone in the eye because of the hurt that's been done to you. But it's funny that sin, it does one of two things with our posture. It even makes us look down on everyone or it makes us look away from everyone. Isn't that interesting? That that's what sin does. But look here at spiritual practice at what's happening here in this place. The tax collector cries out and he wants everyone to pay attention to him. He doesn't just fold his arms and pray or fall down. He, he cries out to everyone, look at me. But the, tax collector, the, the Pharisee does that, but the tax collector does the opposite. He beats on his chest as hard as he can repeatedly. And that was something in that culture that you did to show the greatest remorse. They still do that in the Middle East today, when they're very upset, they will beat their chest repeatedly and they will fall down and cry and throw dirt on their heads. That's what they do. They'll pick up the dust where they are because it's so arid and dry and they'll throw it all over their heads to show this incredible remorse that they have. Please, God, help me. Please, God, 
I need you. I know that I am broken. And feeling the weight of his sin, he doesn't compare himself to anyone. It's so interesting for us to see. That's the funny thing. Because in our world today, we don't do this. Far too many Christians are hurting one another by what we say to each other, either in person or right now, even more than ever, on the internet. What we type and post and text and tweet, we play this comparison game. We mock other people who are different from us or hold different positions from us. I've seen this in the life of our own church, and it breaks God's heart. We need to stop doing that. Because that's what that Pharisee was doing, and his prayer is not about God. His prayer is about him and his self-righteousness. I don't care what your position is on something. If you're out there and you're beating down somebody else, whether it's in cyberspace or with what you say in real life, you are not doing what is aligned with the heart of God. We think that we have it together. We think we've earned the right to say something. We really believe that, and yet in God's word, we see that that's not true. We see in God's word that's not what it's all about. The Pharisee here answers. He says, he says to God in verse 13, he, he cries out. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in verse 14, that comes right up there. Verse 14 says that Christ proclaims God has mercy. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is he saying there? What is he saying? He's saying something very, very important. It's very simple, but yet it's counterintuitive. He's not just saying, God, I hope you have mercy on me. He's saying, God, I need you to be my mercy. When he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, when he says that, what he's actually saying is, God, I need you to be my sacrifice. I need you, God, to be my atonement. And that's why Jesus says the one went away who is justified and not the other because the one who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one that lifts himself up, that thinks he's near God, will actually not be with God. But the one who humbles himself and says, God, I need you to lift me up. I can't do it myself is the one that God will save. That's what exalted means. The one that's lifted up unto heaven. That's what that word means. This is about heart change. The counterintuitive nature of God's grace. It never comes from you. It never comes from me. It comes only from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So friends, today, it's simple. In your heart, do we rank us versus them. This is not to say that there isn't some who will know Christ and have saving faith and some who will not. God's word is clear. That's what we talked about last week. Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus says, do you understand how you come to faith in Jesus Christ? 
It's not because you're better than someone else. It's because God's grace is sufficient for you in your brokenness. You have no righteousness. I have no righteousness to stand on. And that reality should change how we treat every person we come in contact with, how we pray, how we live, and how we treat other people. Do we rank us versus them? Do we care for others, see others, and treat others as Christ would have us treat them? That, friends, is what we must decide. We must decide to check our hearts this week and to consider whether we would fall down and confess our self-righteousness to God and our need to rely completely on Him for every good thing in our lives and in our souls. Let's pray. Father, for all the needs we have, Lord, for all the hurts that we have in our lives, that we would remember what it means to belong to You. God, that we would recognize our brokenness, that we would recognize our lack of righteousness, that we would understand that spiritually speaking, all of us are kind of lowlifes without you. None of us have it together. None of us are the good people. Not one of us is righteous who's ever been born except one, except Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that you would call us into repentance, that you would humble our hearts in our lives, and that we would remember what it means to belong to you, what it means to be your children. God, use us. God, transform our perspectives. Not that we wouldn't believe there's a right and wrong, that we would understand that you are right and your word is right, and if we are wrong, we need to repent, and then we need to love and serve you and love and serve other people, that they too would know the grace of God through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.